I wonder if I could ask you who the most famous person is that you've ever met. I know a number of people in church have met the Queen. Um, I, I can't claim to come anywhere close to that. But I do uh, remember the first time I met the Archbishop of Canterbury, not the, the current one, but the, the former one. Um, it was shortly after Annabelle and I arrived here in Claygate that we were invited to spend 24 hours at Lambeth Palace meeting Rowan Williams and his wife, uh, Jane. We were one of five clergy couples staying um, chosen more or less at random to be representative of kind of normal parochial clergy because the Archbishop liked to keep in touch with ordinary people, ordinary clergy, and, and they didn't come much more ordinary than us. So um, we, um, we, we told Sam and James that we were going for a sleepover at Ram- Lambeth Palace, which they were like. We, we left them with my parents and we uh, set off on the train. We were a little bit anxious as we uh, travelled up on the train, um, partly because... Um, uh, well, I don't know if you, when we got there, I don't know if you've seen Lambeth Palace, you, you'll have seen it as you go up uh, um, uh, on the road from through Vauxhall, and uh, the, the opening gate is uh, Lollard's Tower, it's a little bit like a prison, uh, and so that made us feel a little bit nervous. Uh, but anyway, we got in through this prison-like entrance, and we get across the large courtyard, through some very grand double doors, up the stairs and into a rather imposing corridor filled with pictures of rather sombre-looking previous Archbishops of Canterbury. And uh, I remember being rather anxious about how I was going to address uh, the Archbishop. I mean, uh, what should I call him? Your Grace? My Lord? Archbishop? Rowan? Seemed a bit familiar. Um, and, then I, and then, of course, how one should behave, because I knew he was fearsomely clever, uh, and that took most of my cricket small talk out of the agenda, so I didn't know what I was going to say or how things were going to get going. Now, as it happened, it, it all went swimmingly, and the Archbishop came across as a deeply humble man who wore his rank very lightly, and with his wife Jane did everything he could have done to put Annabelle and me and the other couples at our ease. But it reinforces the truth that we all know that when we're dealing someone with someone uh, with power and authority, it matters how we approach them. Um, in the children's groups this morning, uh, the children are thinking of people who are good, scary. That is, people who are really nice, but who have important roles, and therefore you need to be a bit wary of them. You can ask the children later over coffee who's in their good, scary category. But I'd be surprised if people like head teachers or the Prime Minister or the Queen weren't up there. But if it's complex approaching people who are in the good, scary category, what is it like approaching God? For those of us who are here today who are believers, it's a vital question to get right if we're going to grow in our relationship with him. If we aren't clear about how we approach God, much of our spiritual lives will be stunted. And for those of us today who are seeking after truth, who are looking for answers, the question of how we approach God will actually crack open questions of who God really is and what he's done for us. So it's those questions of, how do we approach God? How do we come into his presence? How do we kind of find ourselves confident enough actually to speak to him? That we're engaged this morning as we look at our chapter, our next chapter in the Exodus journey, which is Exodus uh, chapter 19. If all this is new to you, by the way, looking at Exodus, uh, let me explain. We're spending this term uh, walking through the second half of the book of Exodus, uh, tracing the journey of the Israelites from the Red Sea, uh, which God had parted so the people of God could get through. 
Um, and taking from that point through the journey into the desert as they head in the direction of the promised land. And today we reach a really kind of key moment in that journey as they stop and make camp at Mount Sinai in the southern tip of what we call now the Sinai Peninsula. Now, it was always the plan that the people of God would stop there. Um, Moses had originally received his call at Mount Sinai, at the burning bush, and uh, God had told Moses in Exodus 3, verse 12, he said, you will bring God's people to worship on this mountain. But what was not clear was how pivotal this stop was going to be Because it was here, on this spot, that God was going to give his people the law. uh, That, uh, Starting with the Ten Commandments that we're going to begin looking at next week. And for such a key moment where God would actually speak his word and his will into his people's lives, that would take preparation on the people's parts. This is God speaking to his people, not a bit of a Sunday afternoon trip. And just as the visit of a queen requires months of careful briefing and preparation, so God's appearance to his people requires them to get ready. And so today, if you like, describes them getting ready for the voice of God. And key to this getting ready is Moses going up onto the mountain, uh, which he does in this chapter three times. Uh, And from this, I just want to draw out two things uh, about how we approach God. I want to say, remember what he has done and remember who God is. If we're going to approach God, we need to remember what he's done and remember who he is. So perhaps you'd have your Bibles open. We're going to look at uh, chapter 19 of Exodus together. It's on page 76 and 77. There are Bibles in the seats just in front of you. There's a batting order on a lovely bright yellow piece of paper that shows you where we're going this morning. Uh, It gives you the chance to write notes as well. So, first of all, remember what God has done, saved his people, verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 2 of this chapter set the scene. It's three months since the people of God left Egypt, and they arrive at the Sinai Desert before that great mountain, Mount Sinai. Uh, They camp there, and Moses goes up to the mountain for the first time. And if you like, with these being the first words that God says to Moses, words that form the foundation of everything that's going to follow, we need to listen to them very carefully indeed. In essence, God says to Moses three things. First of all, he reminds them what he's already done for them. Look with me at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's what he's done already. Secondly, he gives them instruction about what their response to be, which is to follow his ways. Look at the beginning of verse 5. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. That's the expectation. And the third thing he says, he gives them a promise that they will be his special people, a people set apart to serve him. Look with me at verses second half of verse 5 and verse 6. You will be... Out of all the nations, my treasure possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, so that's the three things that he says. But let's be really clear about the order in which these statements are made. I'm going to call them A, B, C. A, he says what he's already done to save his people, brought them out of Egypt. B, he says this is what you're to do. C, 
He says, this is what I'm going to promise you. Yeah? That's the order. A, B, C. Note, it's not B, C, A. It's not be good, God will like you, and then you'll be saved. That's not the order he says. You've been saved. This is what the response is. And this is my promise to you. It's not do this, and then you'll be saved. That's what most people think religion is about. In fact, it is what many religions are about. Keep the rules, and God will like you, and you'll be saved. Salvation, or whatever it's called. That is not what's going on here in these verses. Uh, And the reason I want to stress this is because, I mean, unless we see this really clearly, we will misunderstand what the law that's about to be given is all about. Because that's what starts from chapter 20, a whole list of commandments and rules, instructions on how to behave. And it's really easy to misread them and think that they're a set of rules that you're to follow in order for God to like you and be saved. But they're not. The law is not given to a people to show them how they can be saved, but to a people who are already saved to show them how to live and please God. I'm going to say that again. The law is not given to people to show them how they can be saved, but it is given to saved people to show them how they live and please God. In other words, it's a vision for living and pleasing God, not a compliance checklist in order to be saved. And we need to get this clear if we're to understand what the law is really about. But we also need to get this clear if we understand what Jesus is all about too. Because once again, Exodus provides a pattern or a pointing forward to the full expression of God's purposes in Jesus Christ. We've seen that again, again, haven't we, in Exodus? The way Exodus kind of is a kind of little bit of a picture that points forward to a bigger picture that's the story of Jesus. Because in the New Testament, we see exactly the same A, B, C. A, God has already acted to save his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was done before we asked it and while we did not deserve it. That's already happened. Happened 2,000 years ago on a cross outside Jerusalem. B, we are called to respond in repentance and to live lives of faith and holiness to please God. And C, God promises us his ongoing grace, his blessing, and ultimately a home with him. That's what's going on in the New Testament, A, B, C. And that's the key to understanding the moral teaching of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, teaching that builds on the law revealed to Moses. It's not given to people to show them how to be saved and get right with God, but it's rather given to people whom God has already saved to show them how to please him. Now, I think that's good news and bad news. It's good news for people who are aware that they've not lived up to God's standards. People whose lives have not been perfect, people who have made mistakes, including some very big ones. Because the wonderful news of the Christian faith is that God isn't waiting for you to be perfect in order to save you. But rather, he's done everything you need to be saved already. That's great news. But that news is bad news to those people who are very conscious of their moral rightness, but who have never turned to Jesus Christ. People who have worked for a morally good life, but who've never noticed that Jesus doesn't offer us a rescue on the basis of what we do for him, 
but on what he's already done for us. I lament the fact that for so many years, people used to hear from the church in this country this message. Keep the rules, live a good life, and you can be saved. That is not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus has already done for you, so that in repentance and faith, by turning to him, you can be saved. A, B, C. Now, it is true that the church is increasingly needing to swim against the cultural flow when it comes to teaching what a life pleasing to God looks like. Sexual ethics is one example of that. But it's not the only one. But let us never lose sight of the fact that that is not what we need to do in order to be saved, but a response to being saved through Jesus Christ. So let's take the scenario of a gay couple coming to me and say they want to do Alpha. Do I talk to them first about what the Bible does and doesn't teach about sexual holiness? No, of course I don't. I invite them to discover how much God loves them, that he sent his son to die for their sins as well as mine. Questions of what it means to please God and to live a life of obedience to him, that is what follows when we know that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die so that we could be saved. It's getting the right order. And that's what God says to Moses, remember what's already happened. You've been saved. Now please me. And there is a great promise to come. And that is true for every person who reads the New Testament carefully. We have been saved. We've offered salvation through Jesus Christ. Now live a life that pleases me. And you will find great promises. That is why the first words that God says to Moses are so crucial. Approaching God means remembering what he has already done for us, not what we've done for him. That's the first thing about approaching God. The second thing about approaching God is this. It's remembering who he is. Because I'm sure as uh, Julian read the passage, uh, you notice the very careful preparations that the people have to make in order to approach God. In verse 10, we see them uh, command to wash their clothes. That's not a kind of big advert for personal. That's a a sign of a, a deeper commitment to get their hearts ready to meet with God. It's an external action that echoes an internal transformation. In verse 12, we read of the limits that are put in place so that the people do not come too close to God when he descends. And in verse 15, we see that Moses consecrates the people and tells them to abstain from sexual relations for this period of time to ensure that they are single-mindedly focused on the huge event about to happen. Now, perhaps you can remember getting ready for a really important event that mattered to you. Perhaps it may have been a first date, or even more scarily, a first meeting with prospective parents-in-law. Or perhaps it was a meeting with a new boss. If that event mattered to you, I'm sure you took time to make sure you were dressed properly, mentally ready, emotionally ready for the journey ahead, yeah? Well, here we see the people of God making very significant preparations because they are no, they are about to have an encounter with God himself. And what an encounter it is. 
Did you just kind of sense that as we read from verse 16 onwards? We hear of the, the thunder, the lightning, the thick cloud, the loud trumpet getting louder, the shaking mountain, shaking mountain. Small wonder the people are, are shaking too. It must have been an incredible experience. A mountain shaking, fire, uh, their senses blown almost. Uh, and I think they would have been uh, filled with a sense of the awesomeness of God, that this God was not someone to be trifled in, that this with this was a, a powerful God with power over creation itself, a mountain with power over life and death. This was a holy, pure God, not a, a God to be sauntered up to with dirty clothes, an even less an impure heart. This is a God who is in the real sense of the word, awesome. That's what their senses would have been telling them. I can't help thinking here, you know, of the character of Aslan, the lion, in the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis, novels that he wrote to explore the Christian faith from an imaginative perspective. If you've read them, you'll know that Aslan, the creator and ruler of Narnia, is a lion who commands respect from everybody, from every other animal and human in Narnia. The children, it wonderfully says, don't chatter in front of him. But they fall silent for the first time. He's not to be trifled with, not to be presumed upon. They just sense that. He has an enormous power and can send out a roar that deafens everyone who hears it. He's described not as tame, but as wild. And as Mr. Beaver memorably says to Lucy, of course he isn't safe but he is good. I think that picture of kind of Aslan just says something about the account of God that we see here at Sinai. This is not a safe God being depicted here. Not a tame God, but a God of power and holiness. A God from whom sinners need to keep a distance. Hence, the lines on Mount Sinai and Moses' insistence that those lines should not be crossed. As it says elsewhere in the scriptures, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, Now listen, if we listen to this passage carefully, we'd be right to feel uh, at this point the sense of necessary distance between a God who made a mountain shake and sinners such as you and me. That's where Exodus 19 leaves us, with a sense of distance between a holy, awesome God and people who can never be clean. But, and it's a very, very big but, Exodus 19 is not the last word on approaching God. And we cannot leave it there this morning. Because it's true that the theme of distance and separation that we see here in Exodus 19 is continued in the Old Testament. We see it in the rules for the construction of the tabernacle, which was the tent in the desert where God would be among his people. And yet there was a clear division between where God was and where the people could go. We see it in the construction of the temple designed by Solomon, later rebuilt before the time of Jesus, where the Holy of Holies, there was a curtain going from top to bottom, separating the people from the place where God was believed to dwell. And that temple was there and people could not approach close to God. It was a symbol of the way that people could not come close. 
But there came a day when that changed. A day when God's Son stretched out his arms on the cross, taking on himself the world's sin and the punishment and the judgment that that deserved. He died the death that every sinner deserves to die and yet which he didn't. And at that moment, a most extraordinary thing happened. In in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, we read that the temple, the curtain in the temple, tore from two, from top to bottom. Why? Because it wasn't needed anymore. There was no need for God to be separated from the people because those people were now forgiven and made clean and could enter into the presence of a holy and a powerful God without fear and trembling because they came to him pure because of Jesus Christ. And it's for that reason that we find the language in the New Testament for approaching God is very different to that in the Old. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Do you hear that? We can approach, we can approach God's throne with confidence. No line beyond which we must not tread. No trembling for fear of judgment. We can approach with confidence because of what Jesus has made and done for us. He has made us clean. He has declared us holy. And we approach with confidence because of him. Can I take you back to Narnia one more time? There's a wonderful passage at the end of the voyage of the dawn treader when Aslan appears again. But this time he appears not as a lion, but a lamb, gleaming in dazzling whiteness and gentle in voice. I can't be sure, but I think Lewis is referring back to a passage in Revelation where Jesus is referred to both as the lion of Judah and the lamb who was slain. The lion referring to a symbol of power and the lamb referring to the sacrifice for sin that used to be regularly offered by the people but now refers to the lamb of God. Jesus on the cross giving his life as a sacrifice for all time. You see, we approach a God who has shown himself to be both a lion and a lamb. A God who is powerful, not to be trifled with, not to be presumed upon, not to be taken lightly, but also a God who has made a way for his people to come to him with confidence because he sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. We approach a God who is a lion and a lamb. You see, naturally, we should all keep the same distance from God as the Israelites did that day in Mount Sinai. So we should therefore never forget what it cost God for us to have intimacy with him. This is how one commentator sums it up. He says, this passage warns us against the sort of presumptions that still come so easily. An unthinking assumption of divine grace, forgetful of its wonder a casual rushing into the divine presence, neglectful of our need for Jesus, our mediator, and the precious blood of Christ by which we alone are sprinkled clean. 
I hope we've seen this morning that approaching God means remembering, first of all, what he's already done for us. And secondly, who he is, which is both a lion and a lamb. Come and ask us how we think, therefore, about ourselves, about how we approach God in, in, with others in worship or in prayer on our own. Which truth do we need to hear most this morning? Is it the truth that God is not to be presumed upon or treated casually in our prayer or our worship? Is that a truth that God wants to lay on our hearts this morning? Perhaps that may say something about how we prepare to worship on a Sunday, giving thought to it before we join in the singing. Perhaps we pray on a Sunday morning before we come to church that we will encounter God afresh, but recognise that we cannot simply trip up to him and presume upon his mercy. Or perhaps it might say something about the way that we approach God in prayer. Retaining a language of awe as we come into the presence of God. Or on the other hand, perhaps the truth we need to hear is that God is not a God we need to keep at a distance. We do not need to stand far off, emotionally disconnected in our singing or our prayers. Rather, we can draw close to a God who has drawn near to us and forgiven us in Jesus Christ. God does not want us to stand on the other side of the room like a naughty pupil would stand on the other side of a study from a headmaster. God wants us to come close to him because he has made it possible for us. I remember a great bit of advice a Christian gave to me when he said, Philip, whenever you find yourself lost in sin, never forget that there is a father who has never stopped being your father and who longs for you to come home. Whatever truth the Spirit wants to lay on our heart this morning, I pray that we'll receive it above all in a spirit of thankfulness to the Jesus Christ who laid down his life so that we can be saved and approach God, the greatest privilege we can ever know, knowing that we are loved forgiven and eternally held children of God. Let me pray for us.